In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we ask you to bless us this evening with your Spirit enlightening us about the meaning and the application of that meaning of the resurrection. Help us to understand that you were the first and the only person that was resurrected from the dead. Help us to understand that all of us will have the opportunity to be resurrected in the same way if we follow your will, your way, your truth, your love. So help us to open our mind and our heart to what is being said and what the Spirit wants us to hear through Holy Scripture. So we praise you for this time together and we thank you, praise you in all things in Jesus' name. Tonight we're going to begin uh, to study what is probably the most unique, the most important event in all of history, all mankind history. Because if it weren't for the resurrection, it would be sort of ho-hum day as usual. And it is Christ's death and resurrection, which is one event, the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ, is one event. We cannot separate them. But if that had not happened, as St. Paul tells us in the book of Romans, if it had not been for the resurrection of Christ, everything that he taught would have been sort of, all right, so what else is new? Because Christ really didn't teach a lot of new things. He presented them in a new way. Uh, he made some changes. Uh, he condensed a lot of things. But he didn't really bring much in the way of new, with the exception of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which we call the Trinity. Well, the word Trinity is not used or anywhere in the Bible, but it is there in its explanation. Um, he also taught us about love, agape love, between one individual and another. Well, those things were new to that culture, but outside of that, he really tried to enforce what was already there in the writings of the prophets and patriarchs and uh, many of the people behind him or before him, let's put it that way. So what we want to really understand is what does the resurrection mean to you and to me and to the church and to mankind in general? And so that is what we're going to be looking at uh, today. Also, we have to look at the resurrection of Christ as the crowning glory of his mission. Because it was really the Father, it was really the, the sign of the Father's accepting the completion of the mission that was given to Christ. 
if the Father was not pleased, if Jesus had not completed his mission, the resurrection would not have taken place. And again, as Paul says, if it wasn't for that, we would still not have access to the Father. We would not have any opportunity uh, to enter heaven because the price for our sins, mankind's sins, had not then been paid if that had not happened. So we have to look at the resurrection as the most important event in all of mankind's history. And the crowning glory of Jesus' mission and the acceptance of that mission by the Father. Now, with that as a beginning, let's turn to chapter 20. By the way, even though I have assigned both 20 and 21, if we don't get to chapter 21 tonight, we will cover it before we begin what is assigned for next week, next week being the last week of this session. The Empty Tomb. We're on page 98. I have to tell you a little story. <laughs> We've all heard these stories, these Easter stories, year after year after year. And I'm sure that even in other uh, Christian faiths, they teach and read the same stories. When I was in Israel, going to the church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is what is built over what was traditionally the area of the tomb, I heard one woman say to another, is his body still in there? I thought, oh, oy vey, you know. Oh, well. On the first day of the week, Mary of Magdala came to the tomb early in the morning while it was still dark and saw the stone removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved and told them, they have taken the Lord. Excuse me. I just have to check to make sure that I push the button right. Sometimes I get caught up in, in things and uh, I forget. No, I did it right. Okay. <laughs> I'll cut that out before I run the, the CD. Okay. They have taken the Lord from the tomb, and so we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple went to, and came to the tomb. They were, both ran, but the other disciple ran faster. Obviously, he was the younger one. Then Peter and, and arrived at the tomb first. He bent down and saw the burial cloths there, but did not go in. Did not go in, why? Anyone want to venture a guess? 
Out of respect for Peter, yes, thank you. Uh, already you can see that there is now uh, sort of a, a deference, deference being paid to Peter now that Christ has sort of appointed him as the leader. Okay. When, Peter, when Simon Peter arrived after him, he went into the tomb and saw the burial cloths there and the cloth that had covered his head, but not with the burial cloths, but rolled up in a separate place. Now that's sort of an interesting, odd piece of information. I checked the other Gospels. None of the other three Gospels mentioned the head covering. Remember when Lazarus was raised from the dead, he was bound in burial cloths. All right. And they had to, even Christ said to, you know, remove them so he can move and so forth. But in this case, you have John giving us a little bit of odd information. I tried to find out if there was any explanation, official explanation, and I could not. But if you look at the back of your uh, back page of your handout, uh, you might find what at least is somebody's uh, summation. Okay. Now, don't take that for, pardon the expression, gospel, but it is an interesting observation. Not officially, but everybody unofficially uh, assumes that it is John himself because he never mentions his name. But I think the uh, odd phrasing here of these words about the burial cloth that covered the head must have some meaning or John wouldn't have put them in. And I think the, the little story that you have in the back of your handout there um, is as good as any. Okay. The question arises then, was the etiquette in those days such that there would be napkins at each place setting of a table? Um, I doubt it, but so be it. Then the other disciple went in, the one who had arrived at the tomb first, and he saw and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he had to rise, Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned home. They probably were skipping and bouncing and jumping all the way. The appearance uh, of Jesus, uh, yes, Bob? At this point, do you think that they understood that he had resurrected or that he had been stolen? And no, I think they understood that there was some miraculous, something, has something miraculous has happened. It took years, years before they fully understood and put all the pieces together. When it says, and he saw and believed, what the heck could he believe at this point? I'm scared. Well, he believed that the body was gone, but it wasn't stolen or, you know, in, in any other yeah. earthly kind of removal, you might say. Okay. The appearance of Mary, uh, to Mary of Magdala, that is obviously by Jesus, but Mary stayed outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she bent over into the tomb and saw two angels 
in white, sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. When she said this, um, she turned around and saw Jesus there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? And she thought it was the gardener and said, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rubona, which means teacher. Now, up to that point, there, if you read all of the other gospel stories, or if you read them as I recommend that you do uh, between now and Easter, you'll see that there's a lot of differences. Not that they contradict each other, but John leaves out a lot of the details that are in the other Gospels. And that's all right. If any four people took and wrote down what they saw of the same major incident, so let's say an automobile accident, some major accident in a big intersection, and you asked four different people to sit down and write what they thought they saw. It'd come out four different ways. You know, there'd be a lot of, of uh, details in one and perhaps no details in another. And there would be little innuendos, that kind of thing, in each of these. So that's uh, not unusual. But it's important in a way to realize, and somebody asked me this last week, why there were four Gospels. Um, if there was only one, it would be easy for people who were against the gospel to say, well, that guy just wrote that and made all that stuff up. But here we have four different people from very different settings and backgrounds writing about a very important event, and all of his writings dovetail together. They don't all, aren't all synchronized, but nevertheless, they don't contradict each other either. And so it's important to realize, and I think it's important for history and down through history to understand how these four stories, these four gospels, have stood up the test of time. Now, the story of Mag Mary Magdalene goes on here. It says, Jesus said to her, Stop holding on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, that's an interesting statement in itself for a couple reasons. In the Greek, the wording really implies, Don't cling to me. And many scholars and theologians uh, feel that there is a deeper meaning than just what it says. And that meaning, according to them, is something like this. That the wording really implies 
don't cling to the physical or the earthly appearance of me, but rather as time goes on, think of me as God, as the face of God. But the second part of this sentence, for I have not yet, um, I lost my place. Uh, um, I, for I have not yet ascended to uh, the Father. That's a little bit puzzling and there is no consensus as to what that means because, as you know, a week later, uh, when Thomas enters into the scene, you know, doubting Thomas, he said, unless I put my hands in his side and touch the wounds and so forth, um, I won't believe. And Jesus invites him to do so. So, you know, and ascending to the Father, we know and we all agree uh, that Christ really ascended to the Father 40 days later. So what this means is a little bit of a puzzle that really doesn't have any consensus of opinion or understanding. I am going to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. The tone you will find throughout Chapters 20 and 21 are now changing. He was always the son of man, which Jesus used as a unique uh, way of saying that he was God. All right, And the son of man comes out of uh, the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, and also the book of Daniel. Both meaning somebody that is higher than the angels. All right, so who could be higher than the angels but God himself? Okay. Um, it's sort of a unique title. But now what you're hearing is my God and your God, my father and your father, which sort of implies that Jesus now is raising mankind up to have a different status now that he's paid the price. He's open the doors of heaven through his passion and death and is now permitting mankind to again address and come and be with the Father. Up until this time, theologians tell us that after the sin of Adam and Eve and the expulsion of Adam and Eve from paradise or, you know, the Garden of Eden, up until this time of Christ's death, the gates of heaven were closed to all people, all the faithful. All right? Obviously closed forever to the damned, but we're talking about the faithful. And now, the three days that Christ was in the tomb is, and you will read this in the book of Revelation, is when he went to the abode of the dead and brought the faithful out. So he's raising all mankind to be able to return to the Father 
in a way that Adam and Eve was before they sinned. Remember, they had total access to God. You know, they would walk and talk and eat and whatever uh, with God at their will. But after the sin, that was the expulsion from paradise. And now the gates of heaven are again open and mankind can now then approach the Father. That's what this is all about. Now, uh, in your home reading assignment, I put something in there that I've been uh, sort of uh, asked many, many times. And we'll just bring it out for anyone that either didn't read it or didn't understand it or whatever. But why didn't Jesus appear to his own mother as the first person to uh, see him after his resurrection? Why was it Mary Magdalene? Well, the thing is, he probably did. My gut feel is he probably did, but it was a very private meeting and therefore never recorded in any way. It stands to reason that she would be the first person that he would appear to, does it not? But it was also, it stands to reason that it would have been a very private, emotional meeting. Yes, sir. Well, there again, there's no record of it. It's presumed that he died sometime before Christ began his public uh, ministry. Because at the foot of the cross, Mary is given to John, as we already read last week, and John then takes Mary and is responsible for her for thereafter. All right? So, let's not belabor the point. Let's just assume that Christ did appear to Mary, his mother, at some point in time on that first day. It has just never been recorded. On the evening of that first day, <clears throat> first day of the week, when the doors were locked and where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Aha, there's your answer, see? Jesus didn't appear to the apostles until the evening of the first day. Like a good Jewish boy, he spent his dinner with his mother. <laughs> he said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me. So I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven them. And whose sins you retain, they are retained. There's two major important points here. The fact that, well, exactly three, the commissioning of them you know, the sending of them, like the Father sent Jesus to earth 
on a mission. Jesus is now sending the apostles out on a mission. Receiving the Holy Spirit when he breathed on them. It is not the same as breathing into them. That doesn't come until Pentecost Sunday. 40 days from this particular event. All right. There's a big difference. Uh, for example, in uh, 1 Samuel, first book of Samuel, chapter 16, chapter if you want to go to that, there's a, there's a difference because when David was When David was anointed, we had the same kind of, of thing. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> All right, it's not necessary if you don't have your Bibles with you. Let me just read. This is where God the Father sends Samuel, the priest, to anoint David as the new king of Israel, okay? And you all know the story where Samuel goes to Jesse, David's father, and starts looking over this uh, big family of young strapping men, and, uh, you know, he looks at the first one and thinks, well, oh, he's a good, handsome-looking guy. He should be it. And God says, no, that's not it. And then he goes down the line. Finally, he gets to six of them, and he said, gee, None of these are going to do. Uh, have you got any more? So Jesse says, well, there's the kid out in the back where, you know, tending the sheep. Send for him. So they bring him in, and it's David. Okay. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Okay. It says, <clears throat> then Samuel asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Jesse replied, there is still the youngest who is tending the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send for him, and we will not begin the sacrificial banquet until he arrives. Jesse sent uh, and had the young man brought to him. He was ruddy, a youth, handsome to behold, and making a splendid appearance. The Lord said, there, anoint him, for this is he. Remember, the Jewish people, as we had talked about here recently, had really demanded an earthly king. And so they got Saul, who wasn't the greatest, and there were a lot of problems, all right, just to make it short. And so Saul was eventually uh, disposed of, and David was anointed the king. <clears throat> the Lord said there, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel, with the horn of oil in his hand, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and get this point, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. In other words, the Spirit was with David, but not in the way that it was for all mankind, all the faithful, the baptized faithful, after Pentecost. Okay. If I didn't clear that point. A lot of argument could be made, well, why 
was Pentecost even necessary if the apostles received the fullness or the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the night of the resurrection. There could be claimed a contradiction here. Uh, the writers and the theologians put a lot of emphasis on the difference between uh, the Spirit uh, being breathed on the apostles at this time versus the Holy Spirit being poured into the faithful at time of Pentecost. Then it goes on, it says, whose sins you have forgiven, they have been forgiven, and those you retain, they are retained. This is where the Catholic Church takes their authority from Christ for the forgiveness of sin. This is the point in time. You remember when Jesus was still in the flesh, so to speak, and he sends out the apostles as well as <clears throat> 70 or 72 disciples, and he uh, gives them the authority to preach and teach and heal and so forth. If you read that, that story in each of the Gospels, and it is in each of the Gospels, there's no mention of him giving the apostles, Jesus giving the apostles the power to forgive sin. Healing, you know, all kinds of other miracles, but nothing about forgiving sin. And why is that? Because it required the death of the death and resurrection of Christ before that power could be given to mankind through the church. I had an argument with Father Ricks over that, and I won. He said, he sent me an email, and he says, how dare you say that? He said, what would the what would the value be of the apostles going out and preaching and teaching and healing and so forth that they for, couldn't forgive sin? So all I had to do is say, well, you tell me where it says that they were able to forgive sin. Couldn't find it because there isn't any. Thomas. Poor doubting Thomas. Okay. Thomas called Didymus which means twin. One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples said to him, we have seen the Lord. You wonder where Thomas was for a whole week. That doesn't, you know, that's a puzzle, but it's not that important. Unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands and put my finger into the nail marks, and my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now a week later, the disciples, well, maybe it wasn't a week, maybe Thomas did come in later that same night after Jesus left, okay? Um, at least that's what the way I read this now. <laughs> a week later, the disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, and although the doors were locked, and, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be with you. 
And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and bring your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. I think that should give us a lot of courage in a way. If Thomas, who was with Christ for at least three years and was privileged to see and hear all of the words out of Christ's mouth and the miracles and how the people responded and how they were fed and so forth and so on, he still doubted. And we have sometimes run into the same kinds of problems. We get to a situation where in our minds we know, but in our heart we doubt. And that's all right. That's human. That's something that we all are saddled with, you might say, just being because of our humanity. All right? Or humanity, I should say. But the important thing is, don't leave it there. Whenever you have a doubt, whenever you have a problem in understanding with something about your faith, search it out. There is so many resources that you can go to to uncover what is really there. You can ask many people, uh, but there's just an untold amount of resources these days to search out virtually any problem. So just don't leave it there. But obviously, when Thomas sees Jesus in the flesh because he was there in front of him, he then believes. And so Jesus sort of shakes his finger at him in a way and says, you have come to believe because you have seen me. But blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. Now, Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written, that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through this belief you may have life in his name. That is probably the most important summary that you will find at the end of any gospel or at the end of any book. But there's so much more to that that I'd like to get into, and I'm reading from another. Um, I'm reading from another booklet here that I think is very important. It says, John... Uh, Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, contains the clearest purpose statement found in any of the Gospels. Jesus did many other miracle signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have faith in his name. Now, we may look back to our study of John's Gospel. All of the major themes are covered. 
One, certain signs, this is in the first, uh, the first part or the first half of the, the book, or the gospel, the book of signs. The necessity of believing that Christ, the Son of God, is in fact the Jesus that we are reading about, or putting it the other way, that Jesus Christ is God. Even if that involved adjusting one's messianic expectations. And three, the promise of present, not merely future, possession of eternal life. Remember we had talked about that once you have accepted Christ and you truly believe that he is God and that he died and rose again for you, you as an individual, and you wish to live in accordance with his teachings, then eternal life has already entered you. Not sometime in the future, or not someplace, but Christ is in you, and eternal life begins then. And we read it in that book as well as in this one here. Possession of eternal life begins <clears throat> at the time of belief and acceptance. And in our own minds and hearts, we wish to live in accordance with that. Okay. John's <clears throat> Jesus is the Son of God the Father, and the time for believing is now. This book is sometimes a little difficult to uh, read. You've got to kind of work with it before it's... Uh, I want to go back to another point that it's made here. The commissioning of uh, the apostles where Jesus says, the Father has sent me and now I am sending you says, rather than receiving the Spirit at this point, the present commissioning marks and formal establishment of the new messianic community that will grow forward or go forward in the power of the Spirit, proclaiming the good news of the forgiveness of sin in Jesus' name. Regarding this pronouncement of forgiveness, where Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit who sends you have forgiven, they are forgiven, and the sins who you have retained, they are retained. It says the believing community has declarative rather than originating power. It is merely authorized to apply the forgiveness made available through Jesus' work on the cross and on the basis of faith. It is therefore not possible to enter into a true relationship with God in Christ, apart from genuine repentance and faith. Very important statement. But what it, what is saying earlier about um, declarative authority rather than originating authority, he's, he means that the, the church takes its authority from Jesus and from this event of his passion, death, and resurrection, and then applies that to those people 
that the church feels um, warrant forgiveness and withholds it from those people who uh, feel that they don't deserve or something has to be worked out uh, before they can be forgiven of their sins, which rarely happens uh, today. Uh, in other words, the power isn't originating in the church. It originated once from the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ and his giving the power to the church. So the church declares who is forgiven and who is not. All right. It's the same way in a, a totally different venue of who is a saint and who is not. The church does not make a person a saint, period. Even though you hear about the canonization process um, and the, the beatific uh, beatification process and so forth, that doesn't mean that the church made that person a saint. What it means is the church declared that person to already have been a saint. Who makes the person a saint? No, the person makes himself or herself a saint by living according to his or her role in God's plan of salvation and according to the teachings of Christ and the church. So the person himself or herself makes, and of course, obviously, not alone because that's not what sainthood is all about. The idea is that the person has worked and given him or herself to God through Christ and through the church. So the church has nothing to do with it except to declare who is in heaven and who isn't. And everybody in heaven is a saint. Everybody. You know, if your Aunt Minnie is in heaven, she's a saint. I have an Aunt Corrine that wasn't a saint on earth, but I bet she is today up there, you know. Um, the reason being is the church can only declare certain people after they have gone through the long, arduous process of the canonization process, okay? Because it requires two miracles, it requires a great deal of written background information. It requires uh, a lot of verbal examination and records and so forth and so on. The reason I'm a little familiar with that is that a family friend is the person in charge of the canonization process for uh, Venerable Solanus Casey. A, uh, Franciscan monk who died in 1957 in Detroit, Michigan, where I come from. And one of the brothers at that monastery, who is still living, by the way, uh, is in the process of uh, pushing this whole thing through to Rome. But Rome is in no hurry. They take their good sweet time. And sometimes it takes... Um, hundreds of years before a person is eventually declared a saint. But when you read in the newspaper that the church, the church just made uh, Mary Smith a saint, no way. 
declared maybe, but not made Mary Smith a saint. Is that clear? So you have the same process here. The church cannot, out of its own authority, forgive sin, except through the power given to it by Christ and through the benefit of the passion, death, and resurrection. Is that clear? Yes, Rick? It would seem that the canonization process concept is not 2,000 years old. It isn't. So when, when did they start going through a formal process? In the 11th century. Many of the, the saint, the cult of saints, as they call it, started in the persecution times of the early church. Anyone that was persecuted for his or her faith, instead of giving up his or her faith, they would rather choose death. Those people were called martyrs. Eventually, the idea of martyr evolved into sainthood. Okay. Then later, after the 4th century, or early part of the 4th century, when the persecutions ceased, although there were others later, uh, certain people were sort of declared by acclamation of being a saint. So you have a lot of the early um, fathers of the church. But the reason that the church had to somewhere uh, along the line say, hey, wait, wait, enough is enough. Because, you know, everybody and anybody who was anything, particularly uh, kings and queens and uh, noble people and so forth and so on, were sort of being declared uh, a saint, almost, you know, like our politicians today. <clears throat> and uh, the church says, uh-uh, from now on, and this was, uh, I used to know who exactly it was that was the first declared saint officially by the church. Anyways, the, the process has been revised over the years, but it was in the 11th century when Rome took control and said, from now on, nobody can be automatically declared a saint except by going through this process. And it's a three-step process requiring um, two declared miracles after the, uh, or before the second and the third step. First step is venerable, second step is beatifying, and the third step is canonization. The word canon or canonization just means that your name is added to the list. Big deal. Okay. Canon, really official meaning is list. Official list. All right. Any other questions on that? Now, what we just read here. <clears throat> Get the other book here. These things were written that you may know, etc., etc. Okay.
These things are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through this belief you may have life in his name. Now, belief is not just, well, I believe, and that's it. Belief implies far more than just accepting the fact that Jesus was God and died for our sins. It means living in accordance with his teaching. Because, as this other book goes through and tells us, It is not, therefore, possible to enter into a true relationship with God in Christ apart from genuine repentance and faith. And then it goes over to here and it says, but shallow traditionalism, that is shallow faith, just accepting and not applying it, does not save one. Neither does church attendance nor membership save anybody. As Keith Green, and I don't know who he is, used to say, going to church doesn't make you a Christian or a Catholic. Just as going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. <laughs> That's actually in here. As Jesus told Nicodemus earlier in the Gospel, chapter 3, you must be born again from above. And unfortunately, that term born again sort of has been so misused and abused uh, that people are leery of it. But what it's saying is that you must kind of go through your own process of confirmation, of reaffirming uh, what your parents did if you were baptized as an infant, what they declared at the time of your baptism, or if you were baptized as an adult, what you claim to be and accept and so forth, you have to kind of reaffirm that in your own mind and heart and live with it. That's when you start developing this relationship that we had talked about as being the most important key to our eventual uh, living in Christ and having eternal life begin in us. The idea of being born again and accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. So important. We'll talk more about that next week. All right. Now, so ends what appeared to be, and this seems to be a nice way to end the Gospel of John. But then we have chapter 21. So where did that come from? Well, if the Gospel had really ended at the end of chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, then it would be somewhat abrupt. It would be 
sort of not really a way of closing. Yes, it's a nice statement, but it really doesn't have the closure that you would like to see. I mean, in any important classic novel, after the very climax of the story, there is always sort of a follow-on, an epilogue, or some way to say, well, what was the effect of this climax here, and what did it do for everyone, particularly the reader? Okay. And so it appears that John himself added uh, chapter 21, which I think is a pretty nice uh, ending in itself. Not very long, but it does give us a little closure. Now, some of the other Gospels, not Mark, but uh, Matthew and Luke, do carry a few scenes after the resurrection, and likewise, they do give us um, some hints of how the apostles were affected by the resurrection afterwards. And, of course, Matthew's Gospel gives us a very clear commissioning um, command at the end of his gospel. Chapter 21, the appearance of the seven disciples. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberias has many different names. So it's all one little pond of water up there. The Sea of Galilee, uh, the Sea of Tiberias, uh, Lake Genezaret. It seems to me there was another name somewhere along the line there. It's all the same place. Okay. He revealed himself in this way. Together were Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, Zebedee's sons, who were Zebedee's sons? James and John, yes. And two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And the other said, we'll also come with you. Ho-hum. You see, it still hasn't dawned on these guys as to what God wants of them. So they don't know exactly what to do with themselves and all of this wonderful information that they've had. Now, this is just a week or a few days, whatever, after the last appearance. Okay, So they decided, you know, they're going to go, they have to make a living, so they have to go back and resume their, their old jobs of being fishermen. So they went out, got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. When it was already dawn, Jesus was standing on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. Why? Mary Magdalene didn't realize him either. He was resurrected. His whole appearance changes. And yet, when he appeared before Thomas, he still had the marks in his hands and his feet and his side. But there's something different. And that is the glorification, which all of us, should we be so 
uh, honored is to be resurrected at some point in time, at the end of the world, the end, end of time, we'll have this idea of a glorification of the body. Okay. And that's when I always say, I'm going to have more hair. Okay. Uh, that could be. All right, John... Uh, or rather, Bob just gave us a good example of what they were doing during that week. They were hiking up to uh, the Lake uh, Sea of Tiberias. All right. Um, so they went out and got into a boat that night, and they caught nothing. When it was already dawn, Jesus was standing on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, have you caught anything to eat? And they answered, No. So he said to them, cast the net over the right side in the boat, and you will find something. So they cast it, and were not able to pull it in because of the number of fish. So the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tucked his garment in, for he was lightly clad, and jumped into the sea. The other disciples came uh, in the boat, for they were not far from shore, only about a hundred yards, dragging the net with the fish. When they climbed out on shore, they saw a charcoal fire with fish on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you just caught. So Simon Peter went over and dragged the net ashore, full of 153 large fish. Many people have tried to make something out of this 153. And try as you will, you know, it doesn't fit. It has no square root, you know. It's not 12 times 12 like in the book of Revelation where you get the 144,000. Uh, it's not one of the sacred Jewish numbers. So, you know, why bother? It's a number. Maybe it had meaning at one point in time but that meaning has been lost. Okay. The same story is in the book of Matthew, but in a different time period and a little bit different uh, wording, but essentially the same story. Actually, it's in the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he's just beginning to call some of the apostles. So... See, where am I here? Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they realized it was the Lord. Jesus came over and took the bread and gave it to them. And in like manner, the fish. And this is now the third time Jesus has revealed himself uh, to the disciples after being raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He then said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. 
He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was distressed that he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Amen, amen. I say to you, when you were younger, you used to dress yourself and go where you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. He said this signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had said this, he said to him, follow me. Most scholars, Bible scholars, take this three times questioning of Peter as sort of a way to make up for the three denials of Peter back in chapters 18 and 19. It's not something that you know we have to believe, but I think it's a nice way of looking at it. Even though Jesus had to ask Peter if he loved him, rather than Peter sort of asking for forgiveness, it worked out. It shows a couple things. It shows how much God will go after a good person, even though they have strayed. God will go after them. Sometimes it's just an annoy, it's a knowing a feeling within their psyche that they feel something is missing, something is lacking, I haven't done something, uh, or I need to do something, whatever. This is God working at them. Uh, last, one day last week, uh, on Wednesdays, Father Sherwin has, uh, a little bit of a untraditional sermon in the Mass, the morning Mass, where he'll take three questions from the congregation. And of course, these are unprepared, you know, unexpected, whatever questions. And last week, one person said, how do you deal with somebody or how does somebody deal with the fact that they are wrestling with their faith and haven't been able to figure out exactly what uh, is being asked of them or what they have to do, but they know there's something going on. And Father gave a good answer, but I feel that he could have or should have said that that kind of feeling is really a good thing. It may be troublesome and difficult for the person to bear, but it's a good thing because what's happening there is the Holy Spirit is working within that individual trying to get something accomplished. And it is only through prayer and the Eucharist and perhaps studying scripture that you can resolve that kind of thing. Um, and I feel that uh, this individual was really, you could tell, because I was sitting fairly close to him, and I could see the sort of anguish uh, as he was describing this problem that he was wrestling with. So he was very sincere.
So, the idea that Jesus has sort of gone the extra mile in trying to be reconciled with Peter after Peter's denying him three times, that was sort of an emotional, uh, without really thinking it through, uh, problem that Peter had back in chapters 18 and 19, okay, when he denied Christ three times. He was scared for his life. He really wasn't thinking through, and of course that's Peter all the way through the gospel, never thinks before he starts speaking. Um, I like Peter because I've done that a few times myself. Um, I think we all have in many ways. Yes, sir. Meaning, get out and, and so Peter jumps out and starts walking and then he realizes what's going on here and, you know, he takes his mind off of God and he starts to sink. So, that's a interesting story all in itself. Uh, and has many uh, interpretations. This idea of uh, sort of prophesying, you might say, what kind of death Peter would um, have is, I think, a little stretch of the imagination. And had Peter not died by crucify, crucifixion upside down, um, there would be no way to really apply this. Okay, But it is kind of, it's interesting, but I wouldn't take it uh, real serious. Okay? He said this to signify by what kind of death John, or rather Peter, would glorify God. And when he said this, he's See, here we have the he and the he and the his all in one sentence. When Jesus, or when Peter said this, Jesus said to him, follow me. Follow, in this case, means follow not only with your whole mind and heart and soul, but in Peter's case, physically as well. Peter turned and saw the disciple following him, following whom Jesus loved, obviously John again, the one who had also reclined upon his chest during the supper and had said, Master, who is the one who will betray you? Obviously again, as Susan said over there earlier, that was implied or assumed to be John. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? You know? sort of putting his thumb like this, what about him? If I'm going to be crucified upside down, what about him? I see. And Jesus said to him, none of your business. No, oh, I mean, uh, says, what if I want him to remain until I come? What concern is it of yours? You follow me. In other words, there's a lot in that statement. He's really telling Peter, that each person is judged and given an individual role by God. And what's important is that they fulfill that role just as Christ fulfilled the role that the Father gave him. It's not important that one doesn't measure up against the other or another person. 
You can't judge your role that God gave you by what role he gave somebody else. Okay. Totally different situation. Okay. So in this case, uh, as we know, Peter was crucified around the year 67 AD. John lived to a ripe old age, even though he had spent time in prison and was persecuted and had all kinds of other problems, he lived to a ripe old age. We don't know exactly uh, how old, nor when, or where, under what circumstances he died, but we know that he lived and uh, to quite a, an old age and died in, of natural causes. <clears throat> so the word spread among the brothers that the disciple whom uh, the disciple would not die, that is, John. But Jesus had not told him that he would not die, just if I wanted him to remain until I come. You see, the idea of him returning, because he had talked about that before, remember? In a little while I'll see you, and, and then a little while I won't see you, etc. He talked about that, and so the idea of his returning uh, got sort of muddled and people expected and sort of speculated at all different times. But even after the ascension, when the angels said to the apostles, uh, why are you looking up into the sky? This Jesus of Nazareth, whom you have known, will return again. So they had sort of confirmation from God through the angels that he would return. Well, over a short period of time, that was expected to be in their lifetime. Sometime during the first century. Well, here we are, 20 centuries later, and it still hasn't happened. Okay, But that is why the Gospels got written. They weren't written until the middle of the first century because all of those years they expected Jesus to return. So what was the need? But then when it started to sink in that that wasn't what was intended, then they hastened to develop the writing of the Gospels. And they were started long after Paul had written uh, some of his more important letters. Oh, in other words, you're saying it sounds more like it happened before the resurrection. Yeah, and, and he just misplaced things a couple of seconds or something like that. That's possible, because like I said, the same story, or a very similar story, is in Matthew's Gospel earlier in Jesus' ministry. Yeah. And then we have the walking on the water scene, which is another story, um, it's anybody's guess. And I don't think those things are are really important uh, to the overall. Yeah. It, this, I think, gives a little nicer closure to the gospel. Verse 24. It is this disciple, in other words, the writer, who testifies to these things and has written them. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did. But if these were to be described 
individually. I do not think that the whole world would be able to contain the books that would be written. And that's probably true. Uh, there are innumerable books written uh, on commenting. Even this one right here, which I think is excellent. Uh, far better because it's more detailed, obviously. Uh, this does not have the scripture in it, except for parts that it repeats. Um, so obviously it's probably ten times more information than in this one. Uh, but if we were using this, it would take us much, much longer to get through this. This is called Encountering John, and it is a series, the Encountering series, and it's written by, I mean, it's uh, written by Andreas Kostener, K-O-S-T-E, no, Kostenberger, that is, K-O-S-T-E-N-B-E-R-G-E-R. Encountering John. Yes, it is listed. It is listed in the listing of additional reading that I gave you. Yes. Yes, Steve? If I'm not mistaken, I don't think Peter's rehabilitated in the other Gospels. Oh, that's an important point. Yes. Yes. Uh, now, did you hear that? Steve just mentioned that in the other Gospels, um, I hate to use the term rehabilitated. I know that this what this <laughs> author uses, but, you know, that... Uh, redeemed, yes, thank you. Much better word. Uh, yes. In other words, the it didn't <laughs> Peter didn't ask to go to confession to Jesus, anyways, before uh, the end of the other Gospels, which is kind of interesting, but it's not there. But then again, you got to remember, John was privy to a lot of information that the other disciples were not, the other apostles were not. Maybe this happened in a private very private encounter, and Peter told John later. So we don't know a lot of the details. I don't think it's that important to us, nor does it affect our faith one way or the other, but it is one of those things that people do sort of wonder. And I've learned over the many, many years of studying and teaching that you can't let little things like that uh, fester. You either investigate as best you can and then put it aside, or you accept one uh, version or another. Okay. So this ends our study of the gospel, but we've got a few uh, things that I want to cover, and we'll do that next week. Um, I've already sort of outlined for you the uh, home reading assignment. And what we're going to do is to do a review. And then we're going to go back and look at some of the uh, important points that we had talked about uh, three weeks ago or two weeks ago, I forget which, after chapter 18. Um, we're going to then summarize the main points of these last four chapters, do a little summary of the gospel, and then I want all of you to kind of think about this week, 
the challenge that was given to you the first week. The challenge is really whether or not you can deny yourself your own will and follow the will of God. Uh, it sounds easy. It isn't. But it's important. Because it, again, is one of those keys that open up a relationship with you and your Lord. If he is truly your Lord, your God, then you've got to follow him. That is the mark of acceptance and indication of your (coughs) true belief. Because to believe and yet not follow through is like uh, the politicians that we're uh, seeing today that will say one thing on Sunday and every other day Uh, they'll say something else. You can't do that. Your life through Christ has to govern your life on earth. And if it does not, be very careful because eternal life is not in you. We want to talk again next week about the meaning of Easter. And hopefully, all of you will have um, a greater appreciation for Easter after spending this time reviewing the Gospel of John. Are there any other questions? You know, I don't know. It would be, yes. What Norma's saying is John's use, uh, or Jesus' use, of the word children uh, appears to be demeaning. Yeah. All right. But it isn't in this time and culture. It's like saying, uh, dear friends, okay? Uh, because he uses that uh, more than once in his first letter. Uh, and he uses it in a way of endearment there. But don't misread that. It is really a, uh, a friendly greeting, which was apparently... Uh, very common in, in that time and culture. Okay. Yeah. Any other questions? All right. We have a lot of things to cover next week, so I hope you will all uh, join us. And there are a number of CDs up here that haven't been picked up, so if you're looking for them or want them, uh, please let me know. And after the prayer, we will be dismissed. So, Father, we ask your blessing on our efforts as we go forth, particularly as we approach the blessed and holy season of Easter. We ask that you open our minds and our hearts so that we truly truly try to apply what now we have learned. Help us then to accept what we know in our minds and hearts to be factual. Help us to know and really bring into our heart and then reflect it in our life, our speech, our living, what you have told us and what you hold out for us, that is, eternal life through your divine Son. So we thank you for this effort. We ask you to continue to bless us and watch over us for the next few weeks unto the glorious day of Easter. So we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name.